I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And uh, as you're turning there, I, uh, I want to mention that uh, this particular study this morning, uh, as much as it is certainly going to be expositional as we study always verse by verse through the books of the scriptures, uh, this particular uh, teaching will be very much topical. I had mentioned last time that we were going to focus our attention on something that isn't in the text in John 18, and that is the kiss of Judas toward Jesus. But it's really more than that. It's a study of the heart of Judas, both in comparison and in contrast to the heart of the Apostle Peter. Now Peter is prominent in verses 10 and 11, which is our text today, and I'll read that in just a moment. But it is of, of utmost importance that we focus our attention on these two hearts, because these two types of hearts continue to remain as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that we will understand these things as we get into this message and study today. John 18, verses 10 and 11. After Jesus has now been confronted in the garden by Judas and a band of 600 men, carrying torches, and lanterns, and clubs. Jesus asks the question, whom seek ye? And the answer is Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus said the words, I am, they fell back to the ground. The power of Jesus Christ the power of his word and the power of the name of God. In fact, this morning we sang a song, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's just one variation of the letters YHWH, which are the Hebrew letters that pertain to the name of God, a name so holy that the Jewish people do not pronounce it. They would rather call him Adonai, which is Lord or Hashem, which means the name. But that is the power of the name of God. It is at this point in our text that Jesus stands and once again, in answer to the question, whom seek ye, that he says, I am, but let these, my disciples, go. And so in verse 10 it says, And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, 
Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now, Judas Iscariot is, is mentioned three times in the first nine verses of this chapter, chapter 18. And not once is his kiss identifying Jesus mentioned by John. As we said last time, John focuses on much different things than the other gospel writers. But as Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane that evening, Judas was already making his way there. And we read in verses 2 and 3, and we see two mentions of Judas here. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And we said that the word band, the band of men, was the cohort, a cohort being a tenth of a legion. And so we took the number 600 because that would be a tenth of a legion of 6,000. But it is in verse 5, the third mention of Judas, that Judas reveals so much about himself. Simply in verse 5 at the end of the verse it says, And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them, stood with this cohort, stood with this band of men with lanterns and torches and clubs. And so it reveals much about who he was and, and what he was simply by standing with the enemy and not with Jesus' followers. And there is no doubt that Judas, in being one of Jesus' disciples for the better part of three years, not only followed Jesus but lived with the Lord along with the other 11. This was standard practice for the students of a rabbi. And for three and a half years, they considered Jesus their rabbi, their teacher. And they reverenced their rabbi. They respected him. They honored him. They lived with him to see how he lived, to see what he did, how he did it, what he said, what he meant by what he said. Did he live by what he said? Judas had listened to Jesus preach. He had listened to him teach. He sat and ate with him, possibly even asking the Lord questions concerning the kingdom of God. He had seen the miracles and he had seen the signs that Jesus had performed publicly and privately, and yet he knew very little about the true Messiah of Israel. Because Judas typifies the person who lingers and loiters about on the periphery of the Lord's presence without ever truly committing oneself to Jesus. Without ever getting to truly know him intimately and personally. And there are many who today do the very same thing. They linger and they loiter about on the periphery of the Lord's presence and the Lord's people without ever truly committing their lives to Jesus. 
And so at the first sign of any doubt or any confusion or even incompatibility to those who linger about this way, the door seems to always be open to them to leave. Consider, if you will, the privileges that Judas despised and the opportunities that this betrayer wasted, not only in his own life, but in the lives of others. Because this is what Jesus taught his disciples, to go out into the highways and the byways, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to preach and to teach and to proclaim, to heal and to deliver those bound by the enemy. But what should amaze and concern us is that the 12, including Judas Iscariot, were called by Jesus himself. Think about that. All 12 were called by Jesus. Think of Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And we're going to touch a lot of scripture today, so be ready to follow me as quickly as you can. But in Mark 6, verse 7, it says, And he called unto him the twelve. Literally, it says he called them to come to him, to himself, and began to send them forth by two and two. And so you would have to figure six groups of two men each. And gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only. And again, a staff is not just a staff that is used by shepherds, you know, to, to tend their flocks. The word staff here is, is as much the, the same as the words that were used for the clubs that the, uh, the cohort had brought to arrest Jesus. A staff was used for protection. No script, no bread, no money in their purse but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. Live your life simply in the world. And he said unto them, In what place soever you enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. And, and whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you uh, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city the city that would reject the servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they went out. And notice what, notice what it says. It's very clear. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. The twelve, including Judas. But I have to ask the question, did Judas ever really pay attention to a specific message that Jesus had taught? A message that most people know as the Sermon on the Mount. The reality is it is, it is the, the teaching on the Mount because when you begin there, Matthew chapter 5, it says that he sat and he taught them saying. So it wasn't so much a sermon as it was a teaching. But by the time we get to Matthew chapter 7, there is something that's, 
that is stated by Jesus that almost seems to go directly into the very face of this Judas Iscariot. Notice in verse 21 of Matthew 7 that Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then Jesus goes deeper. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? What did the disciples go out to do? They preached and they taught. That would be prophesying because prophesying was not just foretelling, it was also forthtelling. So he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works, healed the sick, delivered the demon-possessed. And Jesus' only answer will be, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. When I hear those words, I never knew you, depart from me, you that work iniquity, it reminds me of John 13, when Jesus finally turns to Judas and says, go and do what you're going to do. But even at the earliest mention of the disciples, we were warned of this man. We were warned of Judas. We would think that there was just a simple list of the disciples' names. Mark 3, Mark 3 verses 14 through 19. And he ordained 12. Now this was actually an ordination that would lead to their being apostles, you know, the messengers of Jesus, the ones who were to go forth uh, in, in, um, uh, in respect to the things that Jesus is sending them out to do. He ordained the 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And so the list begins in verse 16, and Simon, he surnamed Peter. Take note that Peter is usually, if not always, mentioned first in the list of the disciples. And keep that in mind. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, those three are always together. And he surnamed them, being John and, and, and James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and then in verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into a house. So already we know about this man. But if we were to read the Gospels chronologically, it would be in John's Gospel that the nature and character of Judas's heart and his motives would be revealed in a greater way. Turn, if you will, back uh, to John 6 and verses 67 through 71. Now understand that this particular event or incident 
took place after Jesus had fed the 5,000 men and their families, feeding with a little boy's lunch upwards of 15,000 people, men, women, and children. And that was one of those great signs and miracles of Jesus that John focused upon. But after this took place, why did they follow Jesus? They kept following Jesus, not for what he said, but what he did, because he provided them food to eat. Not long after that would Jesus then be very strong in his statements to them. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Speaking symbolically, of course. But it was too much for them to take. And the majority of all the people that had followed, the, followed him after he said this, because of their misunderstanding, what he was trying to say, what he was not trying to say, what he was saying. Unless you take me in fully, you're not going to have any part of me. The only ones that remained were 12. We're told in verse 67 after this that Jesus said unto the 12, will you also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Later on, as Jesus got closer and closer to the cross, we find out more about Judas. In fact, in John chapter 12, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, we're told in verse 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served as Martha always did. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said, saith one of his disciples. Notice, John makes it clear who it is. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag. In other words, he was the treasurer 
for the ministry of Jesus. And he bare what was put therein. But notice something in verse 7. Then said Jesus, and I would have to believe that Jesus spoke directly to Judas. And he said, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. And so this is going to bring us then to a kiss, a kiss. Now, as I mentioned last time, Jesus was in complete control of the situation in the garden, and he knew what would be happening. This we learned even at the start of the Passover supper, for we know in John 13, verse 1, that it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, or was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Jesus knew that his hour was come. The significant thing here is that Jesus knew everything. How many times did we see that he knew the thoughts and intents of, of the scribes and the Pharisees? He knew these thoughts and intents of the hearts of people before they would even say or ask or think. Verse 3 of John 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Verse 11, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. We'll come back to that. You might keep a finger there. John 16, verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, do you inquire among yourselves of that? I said, a little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. Speaking of the very fact to the, to the disciples that what, you know, he was going to die on the cross, but eventually he'd rise again and they would see him again. And then, of course, if, when he ascended into heaven, he would be there, but they would see him again even after that. So he knew all of this. He was in complete control of what was going on. But at this point, we have to ask the question, what brought Judas then to this betrayal? What brought Judas to this kiss? Think of the incident we just read, in, in, uh, uh, read about in John chapter 12 when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, poured the precious ointment on Jesus' head. Now back when we studied John chapter 12, not long ago, well, it was probably longer than we think, but back when we did, uh, we, 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 we came to an understanding of, of this whole issue of, when, of who and when and where. Now, all of that is settled, so I'm not going to go through that again. But in Matthew, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew expands the event that took place as a flashback to provide us with a reason for Judas' betrayal. And this is why I want you to go to Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16. And it is significant here that we need to, we need to look at this 
perspective of Matthew because it is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this lets us know then where this all took place, both in John 12 and Matthew. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And John, John focuses his attention on the, the, on, on the oil that went to the feet of Jesus. But here, Matthew also says that the ointment was upon his head as well. But when his disciples saw it, now notice this, his disciples saw it. They had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Stop for just a moment and think about this. Jesus responded to Judas saying those things in the Gospel of John. What we have to come to grips with is that the disciples themselves on the night that Jesus was betrayed at the Passover supper, no one thought Judas to be the betrayer. Not one of the disciples, when Jesus mentions the betrayer, they all ask what question, you remember? Is it I, Lord? Is it me? And when Judas leaves the supper, everyone thought that Jesus, uh, that, uh, Jesus had sent Judas out to buy something or to do something. They respected Judas. They trusted him because they thought Jesus had trusted him with the money. It was all to show who he really was. So when his disciples saw it, they're now surrounding Judas who speaks up as the treasurer. And they take his indignation to say to Jesus, This ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. <laughs> in verse 10 it says, when Jesus understood, the word it is not there, when Jesus understood, and he understood it before it happened, but when Jesus understood, he said unto them, notice, but I don't think he, I, I, I don't believe he took his eyes off of Judas. He said, why trouble ye the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you. That phrase lets us know it's the same statement at the same time. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? and I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity
to betray him. Could it be that the Lord's rebuke specifically directed toward Judas triggered Judas' response? We see the kind of tragic figure that Judas Iscariot was. And it was a very tragic situation that he had come to this moment in his life to seek to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. All because he was not a true believer despite being called a disciple, despite being named an apostle, despite the fact that he went out and did what Jesus had commanded them and given them the, the power to do, to preach and to teach, to heal the sick, to deliver the possessed. And you might think, Well, doesn't that mean something? That he did those things? I would ask you to think about this thought, and that is that because he did those things, those things have nothing whatsoever to do with salvation. There's a time coming when someone is going to be on this earth, possibly is already here, we like to call him the Antichrist. He's called the beast. And then another person called the false prophet. These are going to deceive the world in the last days. We're told by the Apostle Paul that they are going to deceive with signs and wonders and lying signs and wonders, I should say. Lying signs and wonders. For whatever it's worth, no matter what they do, they cannot be saved by what they do. Because none of us are saved by what we do. We are only saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're only saved by the work of Christ on the cross and receiving and accepting that truth, believing in our hearts, confessing it with our mouth, Judas was in, was in the in-group. Some of you remember, maybe remember a song back in the 60s, the in-crowd, you know. He was in the in-crowd, but he was not of them. How many people today are in churches thinking that that's all they need for salvation? But being in a church, I know that I've said this often, being in a church does, uh, and thinking that that makes you a Christian, it's no different than somebody going into a garage and thinking he's a car. Just because you go into a garage. And think of this, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, Judas was there and he washed the feet of Judas. John 13, verses 10 and 11, Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. 
and you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, you are not all clean. And so with all that in mind, let's go back to Matthew 26. And let's look at verses 47 through 50. Because now we're back in the garden. Now we're back in the John 18 scenario and filling in the gaps that John does not give us. Which is okay, because John focused on other things that we needed to see. And while he yet spake, that being Jesus, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. <clears throat> now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. In other words, take hold of him and hold on to him. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, and here is the treachery of the heart of Judas. He said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And it's interesting that in the Greek, the, the, the terms that are used for kiss here means that he repeatedly kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou, art thou come? In other words, why have you come? Jesus is not asking that question because he's not sure. He asked the question for Judah's sake. Why have you come? And then they came. Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now Judas, a man whose Hebrew name, Yehuda, literally means praise. If you remember, one of the sons of Jacob was Yehuda, Judah. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, for he comes from that line, as David would as well. But Judas, a man whose name means praise, did no such thing toward Jesus. In fact, he cheapened everything that he touched and everything that he did. And instead of using a kiss as a sign of affection from a student to his rabbi, because that was a common occurrence for students who respected and loved and honored their rabbis. Instead of using it as a sign of affection, he used it as a weapon. There was no respect. And there was obviously no submission, yet the Greek, as I said, indicates that he just kissed Jesus repeatedly at this point. Which brings us to Peter. 
because our message is not just about a kiss, but it's also about a miss. Verses 10 and 11 now. We finally came to our text. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And by the way, the sword is, you know, don't, don't start getting the idea that, you know, you've got one of the three musketeers here with, with some sharp rapier sword or some big sword like Excalibur. Remember that Peter was a fisherman. His sword was a smaller version, probably used to do a lot of cutting up and cleaning of fish. So I can imagine how clean that thing was, possibly. Good fishermen always clean their gear. But Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and he smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. <clears throat> he was obviously very good with his sword. And the servant's name was Malchus, which, by the way, from the Hebrew, the word Malchus or the name Malchus comes from the Hebrew Melech. And literally, it was Hamelech, which means the king. Here is a servant, but his name is the king. And then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? Now, one thing we need to understand is that all 11 disciples, the 11 that were left with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, the night that Judas left them, and Jesus began to speak to them intimately through the chapters 13 through 16 and even prayed for them in chapter 17, all those 11 disciples had declared boldly their devotion to their Messiah. Along with Peter, who said in Matthew 26, verse 35, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. They all said it. Of course, we know what Jesus said to Peter. Yes, Peter, but before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. But they all declared their devotion to the Messiah confidently, courageously as it were. And now Peter decided to prove it because he cut off the right ear of the high priest servant named Malchus right in front of 600 men carrying lanterns and, and uh, torches and clubs and, 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 and knives. That's, I mean, that's pretty brave. But here's the thing, Peter should have known that Jesus was going to be arrested. He should have known that he would willingly surrender to his enemies. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus had made that clear to his disciples. Three times. Let, let me just, I, I need to go through them because I talk about these three times a lot. But here they are, Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Notice, at least here, there's no response from, these, from the disciples, but he gives them this information and, 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 and they're probably confused. In, verse, uh, in, in chapter 17 of Matthew, verses 22 and 23, And while they abode in Galilee, 
Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, folks, understand, Jesus is not testing them. Jesus is not trying to find out which of those disciples is going to rise up and say, oh, yeah, Lord, they're, they're, that's not going to happen because we're going to save you. Isn't that why you called us? Isn't that why you named, isn't that why you named us as your disciples and, and your henchmen and your bodyguards and... Heck, they needed a bodyguard, and he was their bodyguard. He didn't need them, but he loved them. The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. He's very clear. This, this is, these, these are authoritative statements. They shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. Now, you would think... That resurrection is of utmost importance. And yet, what is their response? They were exceeding sorry, which means they were sorrowful because they didn't hear beyond the dying part. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. The closer they came to Jerusalem, the more Jesus would emphasize what was going to happen. They should have known. Peter should have known. But here's the question that we need to ask at this point. Why Malchus? Why does he cut off the ear of this high priest servant? From the use of the definite article by all four gospel writers, the high priest servant is what we see in all four gospels, but it is only John who mentions the name. But all four gospel writers use the high priest servant. That definite article, from the use of that article, it appears that this Malchus pushed forward to take Jesus himself. His outright action marked him out for Peter's attack. But his attack wasn't just a hit. It was a miss as well. Peter missed. Oh, he got his ear. But he missed what Jesus came to do. Peter's action, first of all, put himself and the other disciples in peril, prompting the Lord to tell him, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now here's something we need to understand. If Peter had stayed awake to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have known about that cup because he would have been close enough to hear Jesus cry out to his Father, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me but not my will, thy will be done. And three times Jesus had to come to Peter, James, and John and find them asleep. And three times 
Stay awake and pray. Why? Because the night is dangerous. But you know the night would be dangerous because I told you it would. If Peter had stayed awake to pray, he would have known. So Jesus healing the servant's ear helped immensely to diffuse the situation. But it also showed his power. He healed. He put the ear back onto Malchus's head. And it all healed up. Someone had to have seen that. And yet they took him anyway. Because that's why Jesus came. It needs to be said that the Lord did not judge Malchus, although he was a sinner deserving of God's wrath, but so was everybody else there. Instead, Jesus healed him, this being Jesus' last public miracle before going to the cross. But this miracle revealed his amazing grace toward us. If Jesus had the power to take down an armed mob by, by just mentioning the word, I am, the statement, I am, the name of God, I am. If Jesus had the power to take down an armed mob and heal a severed ear, he could have easily saved himself from arrest, from trial, and from death. But, but the Lord willingly surrendered. This was not a point of wondering whether he was going to or not. No, this is why he came. He willingly submitted and he did it for you and for me. And so sadly, Peter's sword symbolized rebellion, rebellion against the will of God. The same Peter who, who, who truly revealed a heart of, of trust and faith in the Lord. When Jesus had asked him there at Caesarea Philippi, asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. But my Father's revealed it to you. But we know Peter to be as human as any of us are in this room. And when I think of Peter, I think of that here at this point, Peter made every mistake possible. Every mistake that he could make, he made. So don't feel like you're alone in the world making mistakes. Peter made mistakes too. He fought the wrong enemy. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickednesses in high places. He used the wrong weapon. Peter used his, his sword, but Jesus was going to give him a better sword. He was going to give him the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So that in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter would preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 men and 3,000 souls would be saved that day by the use of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit.
He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And all this caused and accomplished the wrong result. He resisted the will of God and hindered the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus came to fulfill. He hindered it. Speaking of Israel, Paul had said this, Romans chapter 10, verse 12, he said, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Peter had a zeal for Christ. He had a zeal for his Lord, but he was obviously not zealous according to knowledge. He should have listened, just as we should listen, just as we should listen to the Word of God. Judas selfishly had 30 pieces of silver in his hand, but not for long. Peter ignorantly had a sword in his hand, but it was the wrong sword. Two hearts, two different outcomes. But Jesus lovingly had a cup in his hand having accepted the Father's will. Jesus would fulfill the words of the psalmist David in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 10, where it says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears Hast thou opened, not as if they wouldn't be able to be, wouldn't be able to hear, but it was the placing of an ear on the doorpost of a master's home, and the master taking an awl and putting a hole in the ear lobe to place a ring in his bond servant's ear. And we've learned through the scriptures that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required? Then said, I, uh, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yeah, uh, yea, the, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord. Thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Jesus accomplished everything he came to do. Everything. Because he delighted to do the will of his Father. And we have seen now both the comparison and the contrast of two hearts, 
the heart of Judas, who began with all the rest, called unto Jesus. Yet from even the very beginning, Jesus knew that heart to be one that would eventually betray him. And then the heart of Peter, a heart that was a tough heart, but a heart that eventually melted in the love of Jesus Christ. My question to you today is, as we wait the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which heart do we have? Which heart is ours? My hope and prayer is that it is the heart of Peter, who with all of his humanness would still love Jesus more than anything and anyone else and would serve him to the very end, even to the point of dying on the cross, but not dying the way the Lord did, because he didn't find himself worthy to die like Jesus. He would ask to be buried or crucified upside down. because he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. A kiss of treachery or missing the mark, missing the target, missing it and yet later on finding it when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? After his resurrection, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter would go on to be a great apostle of the Lord, which is your heart. Let's have the heart of Peter.